0: Welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. I'm Paul Podolsky. My guest today is Nick Reber, who is the founder and CEO of Gardner Health. Nick uses big data to look under the hood of healthcare costs and healthcare quality. And when I say look under the hood, it's an apt metaphor because many of you, if you go to get your car checked and they want to change the oil, they suggest they need to change the air filter as well. You're a little bit more skeptical because car mechanics have a certain reputation. When it comes to healthcare costs though, we are more anxious, have a little bit more respect for the physician. And when they order tests for us, our first instinct might be to go along, not realizing that in some cases, not all, The doctors are basically responding to a perverse incentive, where those doctors who do the least amount of tests, do no harm, are actually financially penalized to those people who order tests that aren't needed. This occurs at an individual physician level. It also occurs at a hospital system level, where the big hospitals are in competition with the big insurance companies to say, who can set the price? It's a fascinating conversation, I think, for two reasons. A, we're all consumers of healthcare costs, and we want to be able to get the best deal we possibly can. And B, it relates to the inflation debate. We're clearly in the middle of a big wave of inflation. A lot of that is related to supply chain interruptions. That's what the headlines are full of. But look longer term. In the United States, you'll see that much of the inflation that does exist here is related to education and healthcare. Two sectors that have been relatively insulated from the competition that is affecting all the other areas of the society. Very much in sync with what things I didn't learn in school is about. Here are macro issues, inflation and healthcare, related to micro, an individual person's life story within that getting there and trying to make sense of it. Let's jump in. Just describe a little bit who you are, where you came from, how you got into this field. Originally, it was basically a math and data person.
1: Uh, Started my career at Bridgewater basically as an investment professional, spent about 10 years there doing a variety of research and analytics things. And ultimately, sort of straddled between being an investor and also helping sort of manage the company, particularly our research processes. So, overseeing projects as well as overseeing the firm's move from sort of small data world and Excel and that sort of thing to a bigger data world and more sophisticated modern data science and all the technology and workflows that go along with it. So, sort of half an investor, half a data person. And then along the way, I personally had some really bad health outcomes. Mm. I, I had back pain that got misdiagnosed from a brand name uh, institution. I had a surgery I didn't need, which led to a complication, which led to revision surgery. And now I'm on number five. Oh, my goodness. And what I, what's that?
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Yeah. So I deal with a lot of pain in my daily life. And what I started to realize is that I wasn't alone in the healthcare system that 30 or 40 or or 50% of people, depending on how you look at it, get misdiagnosed, get poor treatment for their issues and this is all around the country, the problem is the data for this has been locked in in a few different institutions. And so it's impossible to report on such things. And so when I started to look into it, I said, this is crazy, and I want to make my career out of it. So that led me to Oscar Health, which is a technology-driven health plan, started out in New York, got frustrated with the things you can't do as a health insurance company, and the standard relationships between healthcare providers and insurance companies and started Garner Health as a result a few years ago.
0: Garner Health is basically, if I get it, essentially allows employees of plans to use your guys' rigorous statistical techniques to find doctors who have higher odds of helping them.
1: Correct. What we, what we learned when we looked in the data on healthcare is that that really everything comes down to doctors because 98% of patients just trust their doctor. And doctors get paid three times more to misdiagnose you and four times more to have a complication. So the incentives are crazy. And what it leads to is wild variation in how doctors practice medicine in ways that, frankly, aren't very public or talked about.
0: And So now we got to unpack all the stuff. Perfect. This is one of those jobs you're doing, which is so interesting because it is a job that didn't exist 50 years ago. One of the things I've written about is how the economy is always changing. I mean, this is a classic example of it. Now, growing up, were you like a math guy? Did you have any interest in statistics or anything like that? I don't know, astronomy or something like that? When you were any inkling of this early on, or is this all stuff that developed as you said later when you were at work?
1: I always love math. I love statistics. Like I was into that. And then I think I always, by nature, hated unfairness, I think is the other important thing. And um, just like bullies on the playground and people skipping the line. And I just felt like, you know, that they're just, I was just always getting into something
0: about that. And so it just felt natural. The more I've spoken to people on this and sort of listened to them, there's a huge role in life and luck and serendipity. But then the sense of fairness of what's right does seem to cut across cultures and people in a very deep, fundamental way. It seems to be something intrinsic to us. Interesting. This whole big data thing is relatively new. I was, when I was a senior in college, this will date me, but I remember that was the first time that only the computer science majors started sending each other emails. And it was like this really interesting. And since then, obviously, that world is wildly antiquated. So when did you first start getting interested in big data? Was it at Bridgewater or was it later?
1: A bit earlier than that, I would say, and I had great statistics. I went lucky enough to go to a school that had a statistics class. I had a great statistics teacher. And so I started messing around with early versions of MATLAB and R and these sorts of things. And then it was actually Fantasy Sports, which my freshman year in college, I didn't go to class really. This was early on. This was, you know, 2002, one, two, I guess, two. This the dawn of Fantasy Sports. And I just spent the entire time building MATLAB models to improve my Fantasy Sports leagues and play them automatically and choose. And I was just so into it that I eventually needed to stop and never play Fantasy Sports ever again. (laughs)
0: pretty natural then you go to bridgewater and it makes sense and you know there's a lot of detailed investment research in these big databases and integrating them etc etc and then you have this health thing and this health thing wasn't a water prior or anything like that is it just no no that's fine totally good just a random thing or did you have a ski accident or what was
1: yeah sort of the literal thing is i dislocated my shoulder huh I had to have that sewn up, yep. which is totally a normal thing to do. I had a complication on that. Mm. Um, and so I, that surgery was not done very well. And I had to have it redone. However, right around then, I started to develop this pain underneath my shoulder blade, which is pretty bad. I mean, I'd say like I'm in a four or five out of 10 pain in my neck and shoulder mm. all the time. I then had three other surgeries on my shoulder and scapula and all that. And it turns out much more likely what occurred, which we're still like unraveling here, is after having five surgeries, I probably have a neck problem, not which is having referred pain down the side of my shoulder. It has nothing really to do with my shoulder other than my sh- one shoulder being a little out of like weaker or whatever, tighter is putting a little bit of pressure on my neck. And so it's a tough part of the body to diagnose. But I went to a bunch of people who are like, I am a shoulder surgeon. And what I do is I give you shoulder surgery. So if you have pain, I do the shoulder surgery. Right. And you then listen to these people. If the hammer, you got a hammer, everything looks like a nail right. and it ends up with five surgeries. Oh my God. And so that's where I am. And each one made it worse, not better. <gasps> and so that's sort of and now it looks pretty
0: clear that I have a neck problem, not a shoulder problem. Wow. It's all coming together, which is a sense of fairness, the ability and fascination with able to map that information, and then you have this thing that strike is sort of cosmically unfair. Any sort of bad health is sort of cosmically unfair, but it's exacerbated massively by these incorrect diagnoses you're getting. Correct. Talk about the information you guys have at your disposal and then you just rattled off a bunch of things here that are, you know, pretty stunning. 30 to 40% of people are misdiagnosed. That's huge.
1: Yeah, it's crazy.
0: What do you guys have and what do you what have you learned from it? If you go back 5 years even,
1: really not that much. Yeah. All healthcare data was locked in one of two places, the hospital system or the, you know, the doctor and hospital office or the insurance company, uh-huh. almost everything was there. What's happened over the last five years, really starting in mean, five, seven years, whatever, starting with some of the Obama legislation that came in 2015 basically, is this data has come out. And it's come out through some government sources and it's come out through a lot of commercial sources because people started to realize, I'm a clearinghouse, which is sort of a switch operator in the middle of the healthcare claims ecosystem. I used to get paid some very minimal fee for doing this thing. Now I'm really a data company. So there's a whole bunch of people that were sitting on voluminous amounts of data didn't before data science was a thing, was like, I, you know, I, you know, process this thing and that's all I do. And now they're realizing like I'll do that for free because I get the data and I can right. sell it to Nick.
0: This is like the opening of like the KGB archives after the Soviet Union collapsed.
1: Yeah, I think there's some really bad stuff out there. I'm not going to parallel it to the KGB archives, but (laughs) pretty, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on there people don't know about.
0: Okay, so this thing opens up. And this must be a treasure trove for researchers, people like you. So, is there a whole team of people that are sort of sifting through this? How much data are we talking about here?
1: 45 billion claims records. It's, you know, like 300 million people. So, we basically see everybody in the country. And it goes
0: back how far?
1: Depends by source, but at least five, seven years. Wow. It's not like 30 years on Bridgewater style of back history, but we know how what's going on over the last several years in healthcare. And describe that picture. The healthcare system has been pretty good and health insurance companies are pretty good at denying individual cases of care that seem inappropriate. If you are going for, let's say, an MRI or something like that, if you haven't been to the doctor's office yet, no, you can't go get an MRI. Or if you're going to get a surgery on your back and there's no indication that you would ever need something whatsoever, whatever, okay, we'll deny that. But absent that, anything that's anywhere around physician judgment, what you see is basically somewhere between like five to 10 times more of recommended testing and surgeries than what you would normally expect from the literature. Everything from the healthy C-section rate in this country of non-risk pregnancies is in the low thirties percent The World Health Organization says it should be 10 to 12. That's a simple simple one. 65% of knee replacements happen happen before people really complete physical therapy, which has been shown time and time again to be a way better first-line treatment. We're just going to come out with a piece on this. 20% of people at a physical receive an EKG. People think, well, I get a test. It's great. Like, okay, well, the EKG costs a little bit of money, but more importantly, your risk of death go up by one in a thousand. You have a one in a thousand chance of dying because of that. Well, why? Because you have a 25% chance of getting misdiagnosed with coronary artery disease of those people, you're more most likely to get a major intervention, and you know big chunk of those people are going to have a complication and die. So you go to your doctor, they give you an EKG, you think you're doing everything right, the doctor's like, yeah, I'm making a little more money on it, and we're better to be safe than sorry, one in a thousand of those people are going to die. And that's literally, you can look at the data and you can
0: see that. You say that basically the incentive system is for doctors to do this. Stay with us. We'll be right back. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, and that's unfortunately clear and I think incontrovertible. Um, The vast majority of doctors, however they work, not at all, but 95% redraw almost all their revenue from doing procedures. So well, I'm a doctor, I have a quota, on how many surgeries I got to do, or if I you know, that's just where the revenue comes in. People pay you every surgery you do, so you have an incentive to do more surgeries. You're a car mechanic, like, you know, everything, everybody needs a new carburetor. Um, it's just the same thing that's out there, that inverse incentive on any repair guy, any thing is all the same stuff that everybody's worried about, everybody hates their mechanic, everybody loves their doctor. Um, but the incentive is exactly the same, and the behavior is exactly the same.
0: And is this a is this a U.S. thing or is this a global thing?
1: It's only it's pretty much only the U.S. The U.S. If you look at it, spends almost three times more dollars than any other country, developed country in the world, with worse health outcomes. The basic reason is it's the combination of a payment system where people aren't on the hook, so everybody has insurance. So you you know the ninety percent of your care you're not really paying for and the doctors get more revenue the more stuff they do. In the UK, the second thing isn't true. So yes, you are paid for by the state rather than your company, you're paid for by the state, but anyway, somebody's paying for your healthcare for the most part. And then but the state is running the hospital. And the state, if you're an administrator, there's all the bureaucracy of running a hospital, and so it's slow to get appointments and all that, but you can't give everybody every drug and every surgery and whatever because you'll go out of because you're you don't have the money, you don't have the budget. So how do you run your doctors? You tell them, hey, be efficient, give the care to the people who really need it. And it turns out that aligns much more both from a cost side and a quality side with patient outcomes. And that's why the UK, Canada, Australia are in a way better spot than the US.
0: So what do you think would have happened if you had gone with your shoulder thing to a shoulder person in Canada or Australia?
1: So I think I would have gotten first surgery because I think that's a reasonable one to do. But I think after that, I would, there's no chance I would have had four or five surgeries. There's like zero chance. You couldn't even get in. The doctor would say, "No, this isn't like this is not an approved standard protocol. Like you don't, we don't do surgeries in this sort of weird speculative way on your shoulder." And they probably would have referred me to a non-surgical specialist, a pain management doctor, for my for that area, which would have would have quickly diagnosed that the issues is with the spine and not with the shoulder. That's my suspicion, and one, certainly my hope.
0: Two questions. First of all, when you share this data with doctors, how do they respond? And then second of all, in a, in a previous conversation, you had said to me that there's sort of a distribution of doctors. And that's something that your, your company points out, that not all doctors are like this. It's a certain percentage of them and and, and how that how that works.
1: Yeah, both really important questions. I'm not going to say every doctor loves it. It's been better than I would have thought. I'll give you an anecdote, which I think is interesting. So mm-hmm. I spoke a couple of weeks ago with a primary care doctor who's young. He's in his early 40s. And he's taking over practice for an older doctor who's 75 and retired. Um, It turns out there's a loophole in the Medicare system of how you get payment, and which also in the commercial system, the employer system, that there's different amounts you get paid for a visit with a patient. And if you spend like an hour with somebody, you get paid more than if you spend two minutes with somebody. Makes sense. There's a loophole in it, which says if you give somebody a test, then you get paid pretty darn high. You get the second highest reimbursement. The only thing you can do is spend an hour with the person to get more. So if I give you a test, I can spend almost no time with you and I get paid a whole heck of a lot. So the game in primary care, and for those of you out there who ever see your primary care doctor, if the game has basically been, let's get all the patients, let's give them a test that they don't need, a lipid panel, uh, whatever, a vitamin D test, They don't need every quarter. I'll get not only the revenue from the lab, but I'll also get paid more for my time. (laughs) And then the patient will think that they somehow need this thing every quarter. Yeah. So that's a game. Now, you're this doctor and you're 42 and you're coming out of your training and you have all these hopes and dreams of managing people the right way. And you've been taught that vitamin D screenings and lipid panels on a quarterly basis are nonsense and they just lead to false positives with harm patients and eventually kill them. What do you do? So now you're sitting in a room with a guy who's 65, who's been used to seeing this guy for 30 years, you've been transferred over, and and he's expecting to get his <laughs> lipid panel because yep. he's been told it's important. And you have one of two options. You can't either...
0: I've gotten a lot of lipid panels, by
1: the way. There you go. So you can either for sit down for 20 minutes and explain to this person that what, all of this data and logic and all that, and probably still have them a little frustrated and maybe leave you. Or you can take two minutes out of your day and give them the stinking lipid panel and move on. Yeah. So that's a pretty frustrating world to live in if you're a physician. And so people who are out there trying to get the doctors who do it the right way paid more, paid faster, and with more patients, I think there's a tremendous sense of relief. Not everybody feels that way because some doctors are like, well, you know, who are you to stay? And this is how I make my money. I don't know. There's a whole bunch of defensiveness as well, but it's a mix, I would say. And similar to your second point, like there's a mix and there's a ton of great doctors out there and a lot of my best friends are physicians. And so I don't, and to be clear, I have deep empathy for how hard it is to go through training and be a doctor. But I, and I think mostly it's just different circumstances that people are in lead to very different outcomes of sure, I'll do another back surgery. Why not? I got to hit my quota this month. Or like I will stand and I will say, no, I will not, even if it means me getting fired or not making as much money for my family. And you
0: just get wide variations. But what about like presenting, writing a paper and like sending it to the American Medical Association or testifying in Congress or anything like that? I mean, what you're saying makes sense to me, but it's really an indictment of the system based on very, very hard evidence. Or are you more try to focus on try to get a company going?
1: Yeah, I mean, then it's the same thing. I, and I don't, I'm not going to go on too high. Like to be clear, there's a lot of people in the American Medical Association doing a lot to help and heal people. I do think it's there's a fundamental thing there that's predicated on. Well, the American Medical Association gets its pay, payment from the doctors' associations who get paid by this mechanism, <laughs> and so that's like not that's not the place to go with it.
0: And it, and it seems like it's probably too complicated a thing to be a clear article in the newspaper describing this.
1: Yeah, we're working and we're trying to build a voice around that. And that's one of the things we want to do. But it's hard. And I think it will take yeah. a little while. And I think it's easy for the country to say, what we need is like single payer, which to be clear, I don't have a view on one way or the other. What is single payer again? Single payer is Medicare for all. Uh, Medicare for all, like, yeah, hey, got it. Okay. The problem is, it, but my view, the problem isn't that the coverage of people or the payment. The problem is the service providers and their economic model. That's what's yes. wrong with healthcare. And so I don't have views. I'm not anti single payer. I just don't think right. it's the problem. But that's an easy thing to be like, well, we need to cover more people. We covered Obama, helped cover another 7 million Americans. That's great. It didn't change the cost equation. Yep. And we're all worse off for it.
0: What would change the cost equation? One thing it would seem like would be like education, right? Like if I knew that there was such a doc, if I could look at a screening thing and say, okay, I need a primary care physician. Here's a primary care physician that statistically has much better odds of picking things out. I would clearly choose that person. I think there's two
1: things basically that would need to happen. The tie between, for ways that are subtle and challenge to understand, but really important. Employer-based healthcare really is bad for costs. It's really in- inefficient. And there's a giant tax loophole, we, which we backed into for no reason at a World War II price wage freezes. We backed into having employer-sponsored healthcare in a way that really hurts us today. And I could talk about that and how we unwind that, but that's really bad because it means we negotiate healthcare as a block, which is really inefficient. Like, think about the amount of waste on expense accounts, right, like, right. versus what people actually book for their own hotels. It's just a dumb way. And I think there's a bunch of things that are, I think, really bad about that, worse in healthcare than expensive booking. That's really important. The other thing is, we've created a bunch of rules where healthcare is really not transparent. And I think we're hopefully changing some of that, but the early transparency rules haven't had a lot of teeth. Hopefully, the new ones that are coming out will, but that's a TBD but that will enable more and more companies like ours to get this information in the hands of people. Mm And the more you can do that, plus having the individuals make their healthcare decisions in an informed, thoughtful way, that's the key to everything. Let's talk
0: about that. So I'm a recent entrepreneur and I need to pick a healthcare plan now for my wife and I. What's your advice for individuals who are navigating this world? Well, the vast
1: majority of people get their healthcare from their employer yep. or from the government. Yep. Those are basically and it's basically like 45%, 45%, and then 10% are. In the cracks on individuals and whatever, so mm. um, the vast majority of people, let's say that are of working age, get it from the their their company, and then they basically have one, two, three, four plan options that their employer is choosing yep. um, for them. So I have a ton of advice about how employers structure their plan. The unfortunate thing is a lot of people basically get okay. what do I do? A or B or C? Like basically. Yes. And then basically the basic question there is once you're at that level, there's not a lot to do, unfortunately. And the problem is like, hey, if you think you're going to be sick this year, buy the most expensive plan. If you don't, buy the cheapest plan.
0: And like it's pretty simple. And of course, people have no idea.
1: But you can't really, you're in the system at that point and you're going to be hosed. The I think there are things employers can do to restructure their plans, but there once their employees are on it, you kind of get what you get, I would say. And the individual markets are basically have become mostly for very sick people mostly and subsidized low-income people. Those people, again, you have a few, couple different options. Mostly you're locked in given what your subsidy is. Hey, you get one plan or the other, they're you know, not so great options, but you're pooled with people who are very, very sick for an insurance and risk standpoint. So you kind of get what you get. So unfortunately, at the individual level, we've created a world where shopping for benefits isn't the thing. The one thing I will say is shopping for doctors, you can still do. And that's a way more important decision for people than which plan they're on. Okay,
0: So how do they do that?
1: Well, today, I think you're kind of hosed. We're trying to build something new on that, but I can give some practical, A, you know, get your employer to sign up for Garner and, and we can actually share the data with you on who's actually going to take care of you. So if you care about data and you care about outcomes, by the way, that's what we're trying to give people is an option where if you go get the right care, everybody saves money, you get lower costs and better health. But if you don't have us, at the very least, there are probably uh, probably a couple of common sense questions you can ask, like push hard on. So, if you need a surgery, ask how many cases the doctor has done within the last six months of people that look just like you. Most
0: people don't ask that. Why is that such an important question?
1: Well, because if you one of the data links is between volume and quality, that's been shown time and time again in the literature. And the problem is that. Most doctors, like that that doesn't, there's only very few places in the country where doctors really super subspecialized. So I'll give you an example. We had uh, an executive of one of our clients uh, here in New York look for tonsillectomy. And he was about to go see the chairman of the ENT department of a big, big la-di-da brand name company. And we looked at the data and we said, this is one of the worst people you can go see for your tonsillectomy. Oh my goodness. One of the worst. And the reason why is because two reasons. One, the biggest one is that he does like that chairman of the department was just gonna do it on a favor. He does three tonsillectomies like a year and doesn't know how they do them. And there's another woman who does a thousand a year, literally like 1200 a year and has incredibly microscopic complication rates because she's a machine and she crushes it. But go to that person. Yeah. The other thing is how do you get to be the chairman of the department? You bring in a lot of revenue. How do you, why do you bring in a lot of revenue? Well, you tend to huck people into surgeries they may or may not need. So that's a looser link. Not everybody's chairman of the department did that and whatever, but there is by and large some correlation
0: there. So, anyway, so for an individual, they would clearly want access to this database, but you guys have it, whatever, their employer would have to be connected to you to be able to run filters for those doctors. But it sounds like that's something that could be rolled out more broadly at some point.
1: Yeah, we will, we'll probably do that. We've got, we've sort of, um, you know, have duties to our clients to make sure we're doing an amazing job for them. And we've sort of focused yes. on that. And then we're pretty mission-driven, though, as you may be able to tell. So we'll be opening it. We just have to figure out the right time and when we can come up for air to do that.
0: There's a little bit of a paradox here, it seems to me, which is that people want they want choice. But choice is also a massive expander of cost. Yep. So how do you find that balance? And I think a lot of people have had that. I've certainly had it in my family with different issues where- you know, you see a doctor, misdiagnosis, 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 and lo and behold, one person is able to pluck a needle out of a haystack and averts like a potential
1: disaster.
0: disaster. You know, this happened with an uh, aneurysm, that my uh, unexploded aneurysm that my wife had. Stuff that can kill you type of thing. And so how do you deal with that balance?
1: So I totally agree in the world of second and third opinions. I mean, nobody personally, I just, you need it and it's just a good part of how the world works, there is diminishing opin- uh, um, results to that. Like nobody needs a 10th opinion. Very few people need a 10th opinion and because then you just get noise. Right. We do these um, maps, heat maps across the country of where there's healthcare waste yes. and different communities. One of the big, you know, the, one of the biggest determinants of which counties are good and bad is the supply of doctors per capita. So you put more doctors in a community, you get more stuff done. Of course. Um, and, and that's not just us, others have seen that. It turns out most communities are massively oversupplied with doctors, particularly with any sort of reasonable drive time. Really? With reasonable drive
0: time. Oversupplied.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, with a little bit of the exception of primary care, because The economic model in primary care has been so bad that there's fewer primary care doctors because everybody's left, but everybody went into specialists where you can make all the money. It means that we are actually in, like relative to any basic standards, massively oversupplied on specialist care, probably a little undersupplied on primary care. So what we just help you do is like, listen, you don't need to go to the grocery store aisle and look at the like 10,000 brands of cereal or whatever. Like if you're in any sort of reasonable, even mid-sized city, or if you're willing to drive an hour, if you're in a rural location, you're gonna have so many options let's get you the three or four that are actually really awesome and if you want a second opinion great like so i think there's a totally reasonable path there to be clear our product and others, like it doesn't like you don't lose access to doctors with our products and i think a lot of people and if you want to go to who your neighbor said was awesome that's great too i think my view of the right product for consumers is here's a great first option second option third option even four or five you choose and If you wanna go to the random person your neighbor said, who we don't think is doing very well, you can go too, you should just bring your credit card, you'll pay a little more. And I think that's that's the right product for consumers to have in the future where people can pay to see whoever they wanna see, but it should basically be free as long as you go to a great doctor.
0: What do you think is gonna happen with costs going forward? Because on the one hand, there's a lot of new investment in new technologies that can do all sorts of funky tests and um, on the other hand i would think that the availability of this data once this becomes widespread could depress costs in certain areas because you stop doing silly stuff
1: i think it will get a little better but it will be a long time before it gets a lot better the basic like i think you're still going to be in a world where healthcare inflation will be above normal inflation for the next five, seven, 10 years. Maybe a little better, like it's been running at five to six with normal inflation at two you know, or less. Yeah. I think that three to 4% gap may, may tighten a little, but I don't think a lot. By far, the biggest cost center in healthcare is the hospital. Mm-hmm. And the reason why that is, is partially that's how it works, but mostly because the hospitals have all gotten together, coalesced into giant employer in giant organizations. They're the biggest uh, employer of record in almost in at least half of the states in the country, I think. And they've done that to get better negotiating leverage with the insurance companies. Almost anywhere you live in this country, you will have seen that community hospital isn't the community hospital anymore. It's got a big corporate logo on it. And a lot of the sort of justice department stuff around anti monopolies that sort of turned a blind eye because these are supposed to be nonprofit organizations. Mm. The problem is there's a very clear link, very clear link, not just us, but proven time and time again the more consolidation, the less competition, and the more cost without any improvement in quality. And that big thing is still there and is not being changed.
0: And how how exactly did they do that? They just charge a lot per procedure or they get more procedures? Both. It's two things. They say,
1: number one, we own all the all the hospitals now. So we're gonna go to United Aetna Cigna and we're gonna double our prices. And if United Aetna Cigna doesn't like it, well, then they just won't we won't be in their network and they won't be able to sell a product and they'll die. And that's why, by the way, it's hard to run in health plan these days, because you don't have very many decisions to make. It's either yes or yes to the major hospital systems. So that's what's going on. And then you then can tell all of your doctors, refer, you can set their compensation around, they get paid more, the more stuff they do. You can give them bonuses in various ways. Oof. And you can tell them, hey, please refer your let's say outpatient labs that used to cost $50 to a hospital-based imaging center, and now they cost a thousand, just because that's what you can do. And so this sort of um, monopolistic behavior is I think getting out there more and more.
0: I mean, that sounds evil.
1: I think, like, I think if you talk to the people, listen, they will say, we're nonprofit organizations. Our goal is to help people in order to do that. We need integrated care. So we need all the hospitals and doctors to be together so I can integrate the care. And that's really important. And and also listen, we're a nonprofit organization. It's not like we're making a bazillion dollars.
0: The reality is, a lot of those executives make ten or twenty million dollars a year to run them. How could a nonprofit have an executive earning twenty million bucks a year? I,
1: oh, it's public record. I mean, there's there's multiple, at least in New York, anyway. Is it? You know. No, I'm
0: not doubting that it exists, but it just sounds totally. It just sounds. Totally, yeah,
1: certainly five, ten or twelve. Awful, um, but that's what it is.
0: So this is making this is just making me think like I can't trust much in my healthcare chain of events because the whole series of things that I would run into. At a major hospital system. At a major hospital.
1: I don't know. To be clear, there's still, look, I do want to hit the point. There is wild variation, and not every hospital system is bad, and not every hospital system is great, You know. so in every community. So is there
0: something an individual should do, like Google their hospital system and see which ones? Is there like a marker for the dangerous ones?
1: No, and I think the, the thing we do is we look underneath the hospital, and the problem is even if you take your top 10 brand name institutions, yeah. and you run our metrics around health outcomes. You run a misdiagnosis, you run wasteful procedures. There's way more variation within the top hospital system than between the top hospital system and the average hospital
0: system. So it's basically certain doctors who are doing it. Correct. And
1: that's the problem with the system. And if you don't know, then you wouldn't know. And the only thing I would say is if you're about to get a surgery, just make darn sure you need the surgery or a test. Hey, just like, what's, why do I need this thing? You know,
0: It's tricky, right? Like if a doctor asks you to, says they're going to do this test or something like that, or you're, you know, look at yourself before you had all this education, your shoulder's in pain. Correct. You've got a person with years of medical school as a soldier surgeon and says, oh, it's X, Y, Z. It's pretty compelling. Correct. I mean, the times I've been wildly misdiagnosed, the doctors did so with such confidence that to challenge them, on a roughly equal footing.
1: I couldn't agree more. I mean, like I'm, you know, I thought I was well-educated and whatever, and it's literally just, it's only via spending thousands of hours reading medical literature personally and being supported by a whole team People who do this full time for
0: years, you can do that. That
1: I have a basic idea of what's going on for my own
0: health, and it's the same thing when you try to disaggregate. What you know, God forbid, you have to go to the emergency room or something like that, and you try to understand each one of those procedures and things like that. It has these crazy codes and and unpacking the bill. It's like almost impossible. Correct. It's nuts. It's nuts. I mean, it's the same thing as trying to
1: get people to like pick individual stocks or something like that. It just like will make people head explode if you wanted to really tell them. In a way that you know is better than the market. On is Google or Apple better? Like, I don't, whoa, it's a lot. It's a hard question. Yeah, it's about as hard to choose like which. I mean, it's maybe a little easier, but it's still very hard to figure out which doctor you should go see. And is the doctor giving you the right advice?
0: What about these things, you know, concierge physicians and all these types of things? These people who try to step out of the system and offer healthcare. That yeah. What's your What's your assessment of those those types of things?
1: I think there's some a lot of good there. It uh, certainly anybody who's who you are paying neutral to how much stuff they do to you is great. and that's really useful. to have somebody who you are like if you're paying your financial advisor based on how many financial products that you sell they sell, they're gonna do it the wrong way. If you pay them hourly, that's good. I believe that that, that can be very useful. There's certainly a lot of primary care. There are a lot of increasingly more venture back private equity backed firms that are getting paid more around one single fixed payment per patient and not per procedure. Most of those are focused in the Medicare system where, for a variety of reasons, those businesses are economically viable. But those are good, I think, have at least the promise. Again, not everyone is good and whatever, but they at least have the promise of doing things a lot differently.
0: And so what's your prediction for sort of the next, if you could sort of look for the next five or 10 years, the way you think this is going to play out, what are the changes that you see in store?
1: I think basically not a lot is going to change at the deep and fundamental level. You're still going to have commercial based insurance, which is very inefficient. You're still going to have hospital systems that have giant market share and can push people around. Those things aren't going to change. I don't see the things that will go a little bit better are you're going to have more transparency, more data, more tools related to that. You're going to have a little bit of some changes in how they administer Medicare to pay doctors a little differently, more along the lines of a single payment than a procedure per payment. I think generally companies like ours and a few others, to the extent we're successful, making some inroads in this area. That's why I come out on that synthesis of a little better, but the core fundamental building blocks of the system will take a long time to unsettle. And that's why I think it's 10 to 15 years anyway, unless somehow something comes from Washington that's radically better than I see it coming. I think you're 10 or 15 years before the economic model of these hospital systems no longer makes sense. And when you get to that point, if companies like us and others are successful enough that you can no longer stay in it's no longer makes sense for a hospital system to run you through the ringer on procedures and tests because that's how they make more money. As soon as we change that, then I think we're good. I think that's a, a decade away,
0: and it sounds like what would accelerate that is some sort of antitrust legislation.
1: Yeah, and they're doing it like they did that in North Carolina, but it's still very sporadic, hard to do, and it's like they're not really breaking up the hospitals as much as they are on the margin, tweaking their practices. And there's stuff with Sutter and, um, uh, anyway, a bunch of the ones across the country, but there's nothing like blow it up.
0: And so it sounds like your advice for the individual, either the person who is operating a company or whatever is first of all, be incredibly skeptical for what the business model is yep. of the people you're interacting with. Yep. Point one. The second point is to the extent that you're getting any test push back on whether you actually need that test. Cause a lot of this preventative stuff sounds like BS to you.
1: Yeah. I would just make sure you need it. Yeah. Some of it is like, please get your colonoscopy screenings. Like, please get your preventative care. Please don't Mistake this for that. Like there's a lot of stuff that's good.
0: Keep your blood pressure low and your cholesterol low and get your, those types of stuff. But it sounds like it's like basic stuff that we we all know. And that if you get outside of that zone, that's when you really begin to ask questions.
1: Don't get advanced invasive testing or surgery. Just get a second opinion before you do
0: it. Uh-huh. And then if you are in the realm of doing the surgery, somehow try to get the information on the doctor to try to get some sort of sample size of what a third party is saying their track record is. But that's trickier to do unless they're a client.
1: Yeah, at least know whether they do the thing that they're going
0: to do to you all the time. Nick, I always ask everybody if they have any questions for me.
1: How do you see for yourself that relationship between Your books, the podcast, other things that you put out there. Like, how do you see all
0: that? It's basically storytelling in a way that helps try to explain people's world to them. And I sort of found that, you know, listen, I'm very interested in financial markets still. And I love doing that. But I felt like with the remaining part of my life that there's a different reward to getting the bond market right than to putting a story out there that changes how people perceive the world. And with my first book, I got that. Like people who didn't understand this thing that I was talking about, they read it and all of a sudden they understood it. And then you could see this ripple of when you put into words something that other people have perceived, but they couldn't put into words, it's just a different form of reward. It's not necessarily the same monetary reward as markets, but it's kind of a very profound work life reward. Got it, very cool. Well, thank you for making time, Nick. Thank you, appreciate it, it was fun. Good talking to you, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack and become a paid subscriber. That helps support the team. Uh, You could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.